kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So Father, I pray that you would work in the power of your spirit now to bring about faith to the believer this morning, sustaining faith to the believer, but initial faith, justifying faith for the one who has yet to believe. Oh God, take the darkness of this passage to show us the glaring difference that comes in the light of salvation. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us, Lord, calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Encourage our hearts, Lord, that we're never too far out of your reach to bring about conversion in our souls. So do that, Lord, I pray, for someone this morning and sustain others in our faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please turn in your copy of God's Holy and Perfect Word to Genesis chapter 38. This morning through Genesis 38, I wanna tell you of a conversion story. It's a lesser known conversion story perhaps compared to many through history. I could tell you a conversion story of the great Charles Spurgeon or the great thinker of C.S. Lewis or even a one in the Bible itself, the Apostle Paul. The one I want to tell you today is perhaps lesser known, but I want to make the argument that it's just as significant, if not more. Conversion is not maybe what you think about when you immediately open this chapter. The contents of this chapter being read out loud alone should convince you that we care deeply about every single word of Scripture being profitable. Because the contents of this chapter, simply put, are dark and graphic. But it's within this chapter, within the darkness, that we see a great conversion story take place. And though it's dark and graphic and messy and complicated, isn't that the story of our lives that Jesus rescues us out of? Look with me in Genesis chapter 38, starting in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chesibah when she bore him. And Judah took his wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so not to give offspring to his brother. 
And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Neom, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is on your hand, in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Verse 19, then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of that place, where's the cult prostitute who was in Enum at the roadside? And they said, no cult talk prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was brought out as she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took out and tied a scarlet thread on his hand and saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. After his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. The first question that I ask when I read this chapter in particular is why in the world did Moses include this chapter? So if you remember last week, we got involved into Joseph's story about his brother selling him into slavery down into Egypt. And the chapter last week in Genesis chapter 37 ends with Joseph being bound in Potiphar's house in Egypt. And then if you look into next week's chapter, chapter 39, it picks right back up with the story of Joseph, 39.1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. 
And so there's this glaring break in Joseph's story with this graphic story of Judah and Tamar. Why would Moses break up the story of Joseph by putting chapter 38 here that doesn't even mention Joseph and instead focuses on Judah? Well, Moses is intentional. He's not scatterbrained as if he was talking about Joseph and then he gets sidetracked. Let me talk about Judah. And oh yeah, let me get back to Joseph. No, Moses is intentional. He means for us to see a, a parallel between these two brothers, Joseph in Egypt and Judah here in Canaan. Because in reality, the brothers are on two tracks. Over the next few chapters in Genesis, we're gonna cover probably about 20 to 30 years of, of lifespan and we're going to see Joseph's more in detail, but here in one chapter, we get the, the bird's eye view of Judah. Two tracks of brothers running side by side over a, a span of about 20 years. And Moses wants us here to see a snapshot of Judah's life while we wait to get more detail on Joseph's. So Genesis 37 through 50 is often labeled Joseph's story. It's what we know it as, and it is. But actually, it's a story of God maneuvering pieces to accomplish his greater story. It shows God having multiple tracks and multiple lives bringing about his plan. And Joseph is often the focal point, no doubt, in Genesis 37 to 50. But God wants us to see that he's working in other people's lives as well at the same time. Unknown to Joseph to bring about his plan. And specifically here, it's Judah. And this is just a, a small encouragement to us as so often we get so consumed with our lives and what is God doing in my life and why is he allowing this? And we forget that God is working in so many other places that we would never even see, but yet is bringing about his plan. This is why the Lord commands us to be patient, wait upon him. See, in God's greater plan, Joseph needs to be in Egypt. But also in God's greater plan, the positioning of Judah is just as important. So last week we saw God's first move, and this week we see his second. Here's the initial setup of this, this narrative. Verses 1 through 10, it's the introduction of a problem. And then verses 11 through 30, focus on the problem itself. So let's start with how the problem even comes about. Rather quickly, the text tells us that Judah got married to a Canaanite woman. We'll come back to that. And Judah and his wife have three children, specifically three sons. And goes on to tell us that as these sons grow up, Judah looks to have them married. And the text says that he found a wife for his older son, Ayer. Ayer marries who? Tamar, who proves to be another pivotal character in the story. Judah's oldest son, Er, marries Tamar. Quickly, the text tells us that Er dies and Tamar is now left as a widow. You have Judah, two sons, and a daughter-in-law left. In that culture, to be left as a childless widow presented several challenges, not least of which being left without a son to continue on the family line, to receive the inheritance as the firstborn. So to remedy this, in that time, the practice was commanded that the brother-in-law of the deceased brother should 
take on the wife and should produce offspring for her. You can actually read of this becoming written into Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 25. It's already being practiced here. The brother taking on the widow sister-in-law to produce a son to continue on with the line. Now this first falls to Onan, the second brother. It's his responsibility. Heir is dead and now it's his responsibility to produce offspring. It's a burden responsibility. Here's why. It kind of shared fatherhood. The son that Onan would supposedly produce would, yes, be his son, but really in, in having no rights to him. See, if, if he produces a son for Tamar, then the son of Tamar would really be considered heir's son. And so all the inheritance would go to him. And basically, Onan would have to bear the responsibility of raising this child, but have none of the benefits of receiving any of the inheritance. All of his other sons would be kind of diluted in the inheritance they receive. And so there's not a lot of benefit in his mind to produce this for his sister-in-law, his deceased brother. And so what does he do? Well, to put it less graphically, he takes pleasure in engaging with her sexually, but strategically prevents pregnancy from happening. He wants the pleasure, but not the responsibility. There's a sermon there that I won't get into now. Plus, if she doesn't have a son through him, then his sons, and he would receive the lion's share of the inheritance. And so, as a result of this, the text shows us that God sees this prevention of pregnancy that Owen is doing, and he calls it wicked. And God puts him to death. And so now Judah has one son left with the responsibility to give Tamar the line of heir. So Judah tells Tamar, just wait till my third son, Shelah, is a little bit older, and then I'll give him to you. But until then, reserve yourself as a widow, and I promise that at the appropriate age, you can have him. There's some rotten motives here from Judah that we'll get into in just a second. But this is the initial setup of the story. Judah now has a widow daughter-in-law. Two of his sons are dead. One son is left. And the rest of the narrative is focusing on the problem that they're facing together. Tamar is waiting for a son. And Judah is not fulfilling his word. Now there's a, there's a reason why the entire rest of this book, this chapter focuses on Judah. As dark as his sins are, as we will see, as far away as he is from God, as we can tell, the focus here is going to be on Judah. And I will argue the focus here is on Judah because God is beginning to bring salvation to the sinner. In fact, this is the point of this narrative. The graphic nature of sin that we see highlights the grandeur of salvation. And to see this develop, let's walk through Judah's life as it's presented in this chapter. So first of all, I wonder if you noticed a pattern that was set up concerning wickedness and judgment early on in this chapter. 
in particular with Judah's two sons. Verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 7 first. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. He was wicked, and now he's dead. Verse 10. After Onan does his strategic planning here, verse 10, and, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. He was wicked and he was put into death. Now, these are really quick accounts. It's almost startling how quickly death comes upon them, how blunt God is in his judgment. But if we feel startled by the judgment of God here, or if we feel surprised, well, then that just shows that we have bought in a little too much to the presentation of the God the world presents us and not the God the Bible presents to us. Friends, this is what God does. You won't hear this often, but it's the truth. God puts to death wicked people and he, he owes no one expl explanation and this should not be a surprise to us the quickness of God's judgment on air and Odin should not feel rushed to us do you remember what God said in the day that you eat of the tree you will die that day it's not surprising that God would put to death wicked people. What is surprising is that he doesn't do it immediately. Surprising that he even has a conversation with Adam and Eve. There's a popular clip of R.C. Sproul, uh, the late R.C. Sproul, pastor and teacher, that he has during a Q&A time of a conference that he's a part of. It's quickly becoming a classic clip we live in the age where yes there are classic quotes and books but now we are developing classic clips of audio and video in this time of Q&A a question comes from the floor the question was this since God is slow to anger and patient then why when man first sinned was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting and at that time, silence filled the room. And I could never do it like RC. You can look it up on YouTube and enjoy it. But as the silence filled the room, if, if God is slow to anger and patient, why is his wrath and punishment so severe to man when he first sins? And RC breaks the silence. He says, wait a minute, time out. He says, why was God's punishment so severe? He says, quote, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God after God had said previously the day you eat of it you shall surely die and then he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and the punishment was too severe and at this point in the dialogue R.C. gets upset <laughs> And he kind of screams, what's wrong with you people? And people kind of laugh. 
He says, no, no, I'm serious. Quote, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. The question is, why wasn't it more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin, any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? End quote. Brothers and sisters, we must not assume grace. We must be amazed by it. Why was Ayer put to death? The text says, because he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. That's the only reason a perfect and holy God needs. Why was Odin put to death? The text says, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. God doesn't owe wicked rebels life. And the scary reality is, is Romans 3. Isn't it? Oh, why? Because Romans 3 says, there's none righteous. Not even one. And so when we read verses like this, God puts the wicked to death. When we're reading our Bible, don't look at just people in here in the book. And don't look at people just like out there, those, those worldly wicked people. No, look first here and how the Bible confronts us and our wickedness so that we shouldn't be shocked at judgment. We should be surprised that we're not right there with them. At any moment, God could withhold his grace, pull back his mercy, and put us to death because of our wickedness. Brothers and sisters, the pattern that we see developed in this text is the wicked get put to death. One of you joked with me last week after the sermon when Joseph is tattletaling on his brothers and he gets sold into slavery, you joked, snitches get stitches. Well, this pattern is the wicked get put to death. Now, what about Judah? Remember him? What do we know of him? Well, last week we saw two disturbing acts. Last week we first saw he's the one leading the charge and selling his brother into slavery. And then he goes back to his father, he lies about it, and he puts on the fake face and he tries to comfort him in it. This is a wicked man. That's what we know about him from last week, but how is he presented in this text? It doesn't get any better. Well, first of all, verse one, we see that he's distancing himself from the people of God. You see, he goes down away from his brothers and befriends a Canaanite named Hira. Keep an eye on Hira. He appears several times in this chapter. I don't have time to go into him, but keep an eye where he shows up. It's not good. Judah is away from the people of God. He's befriending the Canaanite, this is the path of Judah. And so he meets his Canaanite friend and soon he will be marrying a Canaanite woman. And how many times must God warn the people, do not engage intermarrying with the Canaanites, those of a, another religion, the, false, the, 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 the people who worship the false gods. How did this go for Esau? Remember just a few chapters ago in Genesis 36, we saw that, that broad way lit, led into destruction Judah has left a godly heritage. He's entered into mixed company and now he's marrying into the pagan religion of the world. 
Well, next in the text, we see a comment about Judah's parenting. Not only has he entered into marriage with a Canaanite, but now he leads his son to enter into marriage with a Canaanite. You can see it in verse 6. Judah took a young woman named Tamar to be heir's wife. And to this point, Judah is by and large living a godless life, and he leads his son into doing it as well. Parents, if you live a godless life, don't be surprised if your kids follow. From a worldly standpoint, things seem to be going well for Judah's little family. He has a wife, he has kids, now has a daughter-in-law, but then tragedy strikes. His firstborn son is wicked, the Lord puts him to death. Second-born son refuses to fulfill his responsibilities, and the Lord puts him to death. And now Judah looks at his daughter-in-law, and if he's honest, she's the common denominator, right? I mean, since you came into my life, my first son died, and then my second son was with you, and he died. And verse 11 says that he asked her to remain a widow until his third son grows up. And look what the Moses, the narrator says, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Judas, Judah doesn't say it to Tamar's face, but he believes it in his heart. First you were there, he died. Then you were with Onan and he died. Uh, I'm going to keep Shayla as far away as possible for as long as possible. And this is unrighteous blame attributed to Tamar. And so he sidelines her. He, he just drags her along. He's lying to her and he's misleading her. And all the while, she's just patiently waiting. Well, then tragedy strikes again. This time, Judah's wife dies. You can see it in verse 12. The text says she died and when, and then when Judah was comforted, meaning when the time of mourning was over, Took some time, weeks, months, who knows. When he was comforted, what happens? He went up to Timnah to his sheep seers, he and his friend Hira. You know, maybe a trip with the boys will do me some good. And by this time, Tamar is still waiting. She hears word that he's leaving. Shayla's plenty old enough. And she's tired of waiting, so she comes up with her own plan. She covers her face. She takes away the, the custom look of a widow. She covers her face with a veil. She knows where Judah and his men will be. This area was known for cultish prostitution. And what does this say of Judah's character? That his daughter-in-law can say, I'm tired of waiting on him, and so I will take on this look, and I'll wait by the road, and I know I'll be successful that he'll want to approach me. This is not Judah's first time in sexual immorality. Now, some will question, did Tamar really know what she was doing? And I want to argue that absolutely, because you see in the text... When Judah confronts her as a prostitute, not knowing that she is his daughter-in-law, she doesn't correct him. She goes further and begins to negotiate with him. 
She doesn't, wait, 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 you're mistaken. No, she continues on the path. And here we see with Judah, his desire for sensual pleasure is seen to be his priority. Look at verse 16. He approaches this apparent stranger. Come, let me be with you. She says, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a goat, a payment for that day. She says, how will I know that you'll give it to me? She says, as payment, down payment, give me your signet, your cord, your staff as a pledge. Now, these three things would have all been unique items to Judah. The signet was a unique design for him to, that would, it was a, it was a, basically like a ring that hung around the, uh, a cord of his neck, it would, he would use it to sign letters with the seal. It would be unique seal to Judah. The staff would have been engraved that it belonged to him. One commentator wrote of this, this is like Judah giving his license, social security number, and passport to Tamar. Isn't that crazy? Well, sin makes you stupid. Here we see Judah's desire for sexual pleasure leading to perverse desperation. He wants what he wants so bad. He's willing to put his name, his reputation. In the moment, he, he, he doesn't care. He, he, I don't care if people find out. I'm going to be with this woman. Imagine the most secret of hidden sins that you don't want anybody to find out. The shame and the fear and the attempts to hide it that it would create in you. And you have this woman say, you can have me, but let me have your license. No one would do it unless you're blinded by sexual pleasure. And how many people have been blinded by that evil demon? It throws reason out the window. Rationale, logic. You just want what you want and you don't care. In the moment, what happens? And so Judah gives this personal identification to her. They sleep together and she disappears. Speed up the text a little bit here. Judah tries to find her, to pay her as a prostitute. He can't find her. He sends hire his friends. Hey, go find her, pay her for me. In verse 21, you can see where's the cult prostitute? They say there is no cult prostitute around here. So he goes back to Judah and says, I couldn't find her. And so what does he do? Verse 23, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. He hides. He says, just, just forget about it. If we make a big deal about it, we'll be laughed at. My reputation will be ruined. Just let her be. And in the back of his mind, he's just hoping that it never comes around to bite him. And here we see a self-centered, self-protecting, prideful root in Judah. Three months go by, Tamar is pregnant. She begins to show. See, she got the baby that was promised to her, but that Judah failed to provide. She took matters into her own hand. When Judah wanted to sideline her, she put herself in the game. And she did, a pregnancy comes. And the people see, they find out, they come tell Judah, your daughter-in-law, she's committed this unseemly act, 
sexual immorality. She's pregnant out of wedlock. Can you believe it? She has been unfaithful. She has been impure. She deserves to die. And Judah, in his self-righteous, hypocritical way, says, oh yeah, bring her out and let her be burned. Burn for her wickedness and impurity and sexual immorality. She is despicable. What kind of person would do this? Give her what she deserves. Friends, I wonder if any of you are at this point. Do you, content, do you condemn the sins of others while hiding your own? How often has the name of Christ been hurt by pastors who publicly preach morality while they privately live in scandal? How many deacons are known for godliness in the church but worldliness in the community? How many Christians play the part on Sunday but play the harlot during the week? Oh, brothers and sisters, it's a dangerous position to be in to condemn the sins of others while privately hiding your own. Judah is despicable here. Let her be burned for this sexual immoral thing that she has done, that he created. See if we can wrap our minds around the full scale of Judah's character. He leaves his brother for dead in Egypt. He distances himself from his own people. He takes on the ways of pagan men. He marries and leads his son to marry Canaanite women. He basically disowns and abandons his daughter-in-law. He engages in cultic prostitution. He pridefully seeks to protect his reputation and self-righteously and hypocritically sentences his daughter-in-law to death for a sin he committed. And what's the pattern of this text? The Lord puts to death the wicked. And so the big question is, why is Judah still living? His sons are simply described as wicked and dead. Here we see a complete list of Judah's sins as he's living them out before us and he's still alive, why? There is only one answer. The only reason Judah is still alive right now is because of the grace of God. God is giving him grace, grace that he doesn't deserve and that he cannot earn. As you examine this story, friends, I want you to consider why are you not yet dead in your sin? And see, God is giving you grace right now. Being patient with you. I mean, you know your heart, you know your thoughts, you know your past. Why would God give you one more second without judgment? Because of grace. So what happens in the story? Tamar is on her way to be executed and she asks, shouldn't the man who is also guilty 
be punished too. That's basically what she's asking. In fact, here are his things, Judah. I'm sure you can identify them. There's much to be said about Tamar here that maybe is another sermon. But you have to admire the narration here, the, how the story unfolds in God's providence. Immediately Judah knows what's happened. Now this is critical. Judah is caught in his sin. There's no way around it. I've got your license, your passport, your social security number of the man who got me pregnant. And you can see right here, Judah. What do you do when you're caught in sin? He's caught red-handed. Look at verse 26. Then Judah identified them. These are mine. And said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her my son Shayla. And he did not know her again. Now that is a short verse. It's the climax of this story. Judah is caught, but he isn't hardened. He's humbled. He's humbled to repentance. Now, there's two aspects of repentance I want you to see here. Number one, he acknowledges the seriousness of his own sin. She's more righteous than I. And two, he forsakes it or he turns from it. He did not know her anymore. Meaning, he wasn't with her anymore. She is more righteous than I. You can hear the acknowledgement. I've committed sin. I'm the unrighteous one. The one we are sentencing to death. I deserve that. When you truly repent, you feel the seriousness of the sin. It's not just a, I'm sorry, while you continue on the path. I'm sorry the hurt that it's caused you, but I'm going to continue. Or I'm sorry that this had these effects, but nevertheless, it's still my life. No, no, no. True repentance is I'm the sinner, and I'm turning from it, and I'm forsaking it. This verse doesn't show a lot, but I do believe it shows the conversion of Judah, or at least the beginning steps of his conversion. I don't know if I would say that just based upon that one verse alone, but here's the thing. True conversion results in a changed life, and I'm not going to spoil the rest of Genesis here for the coming weeks, but mark my words, from this moment, Judah is a changed man. Not a perfect man, but a changed man. And this is what conversion does. You become new. And this is my plea to the 21st century church today. True conversion is not just a profession of I believe or an intellectual assent. I believe. Have you been born again? Have you been changed? How will you respond to your sin today? Will you be hardened or will you be humbled? The majority of this story is dark. 
But verse 26 comes and it changes. From that moment on, Judah confesses his sin. He turns from it. He's a changed man. Now, in the very few moments that we have left, I want to consider together where the salvation comes from and why does it happen? Notice how the chapter ends, verse 27 to 30. Summer Isaac, six months has passed. Tamar is in labor with twins. This is similar to Jacob and Esau. One starts to come out and then the other wrestles out first. There's this, this is this, this squirm here to who's coming out first, right? All the moms in the room are just like grimacing a little bit. Two sons are born, Perez and Zerah. And just as it is with the case of Jacob and Esau, we question, why is there wrestling like this in the womb? And the bottom line of this, here's another sermon. This, this text has like five sermons in it. Here's the bottom line of the wrestling. God's purpose and election is being fulfilled just like it was with Jacob and Esau. It would be Perez who is the chosen carrier for the line of Judah. Now, what is significant about Perez? To see the significance here, I'm going to ask you to go three places with me. First Ruth, then Matthew, then Revelation. These will be quick. Turn with me to the very last page of Ruth. Ruth has four chapters. Turn to the very last section. The book of Ruth ends with God continuing his line of people through Ruth and Boaz, years after Judah. And Ruth ends by showing the connection. The child that comes from Ruth and Boaz will eventually lead to King David, Israel's most famous king. But notice where the line of King David begins. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Now these are the generations... Of who? Prez. So Judah leads to Perez, who eventually leads to Boaz, who eventually leads to King David. Like, I don't care how cool your family tree is, it's not that cool. But it doesn't stop there. Go to Matthew chapter 1, very first book of the New Testament. This is not just an Old Testament thing. This crosses over covenants. Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew 1, the people of God are listed even further out than Ruth in a genealogy. It says Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob. And then look what it says in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah. And his brothers, in verse 3, and Judah, the father, Perez. Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah. Not Joseph, but Judah, who leads to King David. If you follow out Matthew 1's genealogy, Judah, who leads to King David, who leads to the people of Babylon. And the very last part, who leads to who? Jesus, who is called the Christ. See, the line of Judah is the line that leads all the way to Jesus. 
If you want the simplest answers for what's happening in Genesis 38, it would be this. God is preserving the line of Judah to preserve the line of the Messiah. And one more significant pointer. Turn all the way to Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. Here we see a vision of a filled heaven at the end of history. And in heaven there's this scroll that no one is powerful enough or worthy enough to open. There is no higher stakes that's going on. This is the end of history. Heaven is filled. There's a scroll. Who's going to be the one to open it? Revelation 5, 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Joseph? Of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Isn't this amazing? In the beginning, Judah, the scoundrel of Genesis, steeped in sin and in darkness, he finishes in Revelation with his name echoing in the chambers of heaven, being the tribe that brings about Jesus, who is alone worthy to open the scroll. Judah is the prime example of, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. If you want the simplest of answers of what's happening in Genesis 38, it's God preserving the line of Judah to preserve the line of the Messiah. I want to finish like this. I wonder, as we go through Judah's story, if you see yourself in Judah. Ever had conspiring thoughts about someone else? Ever indulged in the ways of the world? Have you ever misled someone or been dishonest for your own benefit and gain? Or dragged someone along out of fear to take advantage of them? Engaged in prostitution? You say, whew, I'm safe on that one. Well, actually, Jesus says where there's lust in the heart and mind, it's actually committed there itself. Ever tried to pridefully protect your own reputation or hypocritically held standards above others that you don't hold to yourself? Friends, Judah is not unique in his sin. This story paints a picture of our own hearts in rebellion against God. And the only reason we're not struck down in judgment is the same reason for Judah, the grace of God. The question is not, why is God so harsh? The question is, given our sin, why are we allowed to live? This chapter confronts every single person in this room, every single person in our community, every single sinner on this planet. It confronts us with the hope that Jesus can make you new. No matter how dirty, Judah's been there. No matter how dark, well, Judah went there too. He's a man who slept with his daughter-in-law and then tried to have her burned. The biblical authors hold no punches when it comes to describing sin. Because they know their readers know sin all too well. It's the reality of our hearts. And just as the Bible depicts sin in its graphic reality, it shows salvation in a greater one. This is why the line of the Messiah came. Because if you think you're too dirty for God, if you think you're too messy and too dark, Judah is speaking to you today that God is not looking for the righteous. He's looking for the ones who will claim like he did, I'm not it. 
I'm not righteous myself and I need a savior. This is why Jesus' line was protected so that he could become, he could come, he could provide the righteousness that we don't have to pay the penalty for the unrighteousness that we do. Simultaneously, Jesus on the cross with his outstretched arms simultaneously is paying for your sin while offering you to come to have salvation in him. There is no hope in this chapter to say, don't be like Judah. Friends, you are like Judah. The hope is there is one who has come. He's the lamb of God that takes away sin and he's the lion of Judah who overcomes. Judah.